0: So, where we are today, we're in the third week of a series on parables. The stories that Jesus told uh, as Jesus was teaching about the kingdom and embodying what God's kingdom is. He used stories as a way of interacting with people. And these stories are an opportunity for the people that he talked to to be able to see themselves and each other and God in new ways and Uh, By the power of the Holy Spirit, we're able to read Scripture, and it can do that same thing for us as well. So we're going to be interacting with the story of the Good Samaritan this morning. Uh, And as we do that, I invite you, um, in a way, uh, as I was preparing a couple weeks ago, I learned about the idea of approaching uh, Scripture as a dialogue, uh, where we're not just reading something flat on on a page, but we're reading something that we believe has the power to, in turn, read us and show us parts of ourselves or show us parts of our community that we wouldn't otherwise be able to see, making it fresh. Uh, So I invite you, uh, as we're looking at this familiar story, to allow it to read you, uh, to allow it to read us, uh, so that there might be things that come out of it. Maybe it won't necessarily be fresh or new, maybe it'll be a reiteration of something that you have already been thinking about in this past week. Uh, but I, uh, it could be something new and fresh in this moment. But I do believe that God has a particular word for each of you um, and for us as a community, just as God has met me in this story. Uh, and I know that this is a familiar story because there's even ways that in our um, like context and culture we have Good Samaritan laws. There's, there's an understanding of what being a Good Samaritan is like. But I do think that as we uh, interact with the story today that there could be new things for us. And something um, that I'm grateful uh, to Ben and Chris as they were leading us and in, in bringing themselves and responding uh, not just to the songs um, because they're things that we sing, but they're things that are actually shaping us. They're things that are giving words to things that we're experiencing. I think that this parable can do this too. Uh, knowing that, it almost I was going to say over the last week, over the last month, the last couple years, there have been many situations where we uh, individually have found ourselves in a position of needing compassion. We've maybe felt like we've been the one who's been bruised and bloodied on the side of the street. Uh, There's also been times when we've been in the position to support somebody who uh, we wouldn't have called our neighbor before, but we're drawn to in that way. Um, I'm thinking of the the things over the past several weeks, just with the... um, the continuation of gun violence, like the most recent uh, in Illinois last uh, earlier this week, uh, with legislation and with uh, Supreme Court rulings, with Roe versus Wade, and with environ- things related to the environment. There's just so many different things on top of COVID and all these things. We're coming to this place this morning uh, not as blank slates. We're coming from a context, and we need to. Uh, we need God to speak to us through God's word in our context, and so I'm, I'm really praying that God will uh, do that through this story today. And I feel uh, a responsibility that I don't know that is always communicated from the person who's teaching, uh, but is always felt, that I feel a responsibility to pull out uh, these things Uh, in our context, be able to speak to what are we actually experiencing, because the words that happen on Sunday morning aren't meant to be isolated from the things happening uh, in our context. Uh, The news is not our scripture, but scripture does speak to what we're experiencing in the news, so I do hope that uh, we'll experience that together today. So our scripture this morning uh, is from Luke 10, verses 25 through 39, but I'm going to start by reading from uh, Luke 10, 25 uh, through 29 to set, to set the scene for the story. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, Jesus replied, how do you read it? The expert in the law answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? The man who initiates this interaction with Jesus is described as a lawyer, which In my mind, they go to court of law, that sort of lawyer, but in this context, it was specific to religious law, Uh, so the things in the Old Testament, things from the first five books of the Bible that Moses wrote down as directives from God to the people of Israel to help them know how to live as God's people. Uh, Those things were studied, studied, studied all throughout uh, uh, Israel's history to be able to keep Gleaning, how is it that we're supposed to live? Who are we supposed to be? And so people like this man, who's described as a lawyer, he had dedicated his life to studying the letter of the law so that he would understand what he was supposed to do and be able to live rightly. And so it really mattered to him that he would get this question right. He really wanted to know, how do I inherit eternal life? Uh, And the reason why this would be really important to him is because that's what the purpose of the law was for. Uh, it was for uh, given to the people of Israel so that if they lived in obedience to it, um, they would be able to live fully in the promised land, in the land that was given to them. Uh, in Deuteronomy uh, 30, verses 15 to 16, uh, it says, and this is from the Old Testament, from those books of the law, Uh, after the law had been laid out before them, God says, See, I have set before you today life and prosperity, death and adversity. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I am commanding you today by loving the Lord your God and walking in his ways and observing his commandments, decrees, and ordinances, then you shall live and become numerous, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to possess. And so this understanding of the law and the lawyer's question about what do I do to inherit life, like this is what his life work was about, being able to get this answer right. And in response to Jesus' question back to him where Jesus says, well, how do you read the law? Like, I've, in a way, it seems like an honoring question that Jesus says, I know that you've been studying this. What do you think about this? And in response to Jesus' question, the lawyer recites an age-old line from Scripture from Deuteronomy 6, 5. It says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And this is something he's likely heard since he was a kid, uh, something that had been been repeated in his family and was likely all around him. Because that passage from Deuteronomy goes on to say, keep these words that I am commanding you today in your heart. Recite them to your children and talk about them when you are at home and when you are away, when you lie down and when you rise. Bind them as a sign on your hand and fix them on an emblem on your as an emblem on your forehead and write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So, along with this uh, well-known scripture, the lawyer also adds to that, "Love your neighbor as yourself," which is from Leviticus 19:18. Uh, Jesus tells the lawyer that he had the correct answer uh, that and that he should live that way, which is something that uh, stood out to me as I was uh, studying this passage, uh, the idea of you will live. Because the form of that word, um, of that Greek word that Jesus uses here, is also used in uh, Mark chapter 5, which is one of my favorite places. It's where Jesus heals uh, a, a girl who had been sick and died, and also when Jesus is in a crowd. He uh, heals a woman who had been uh, unable to get any sort of help for a long time. But uh, this word, to live, is used there as well, where a young girl is very sick and her dad goes to Jesus to ask Jesus to come to the house and to lay his hands on her so that she may be well and live. That word live is the same as when Jesus says to the lawyer, do these things and you will live. So this kind of life is not just an intellectual life that Jesus is inviting the lawyer to. It's a physical life uh, beyond intellectual and in assent and correct answers to healing in life. And I I, I liked thinking about it this way that um, that the lawyer he was looking for like what do I need to do so I can get what I want and Jesus is like no actually if you live this way you are going to have life like not just uh, living out of formula so that you can accomplish something that you want, but you are going to have full life. But the lawyer's response, uh, he wasn't excited about being invited to live in this way. In fact, it says that he felt like he needed to justify himself, so he probably felt exposed or angry or defensive, thinking, I have been studying the law, like, of course I've been living this way. Who are you to tell me that I need to live differently? Uh, It says, to justify himself, he then asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Neighbor, the lawyer thinks, needs some defining. Uh, The full verse from Leviticus 19.18, where the lawyer had quoted, love your neighbor as yourself. I want to read this whole thing to give a little bit more context for why uh, he might have thought neighbor needed more defining. It says, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against any of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And the parts that I'm I'm emphasizing are any of your people and love your neighbor. Uh, In this passage, neighbor is used in the context of your people, making a connection between who your people are and who your neighbor is. As the lawyer seeks to justify his understanding of neighbor, he also wants to test Jesus' understanding of neighbor. This idea of wanting justification is in the legal sense, wanting to show what was right and correct. And I can imagine the lawyer thinking, tell me how you read neighbor. So similar to how Jesus is like, tell me how you read it. Now the lawyer is saying to Jesus, tell me how you read neighbor. Um, who are my people, Jesus? Who am I to love as myself? Uh, and I think it's because the lawyer thinks he's already doing this. So he's wanting to justify that he is already loving his neighbor. Now, if I were in the crowd, and I had been around Jesus for any amount of time, at this point, I'd be leaning in, because I'd be like, oh, I think he's going to tell a story. And I think that it's going to turn things on their head. And if I were in the crowd, and if that's what I thought, I'd be right, because Jesus then does tell a story. And this is what he says in Luke 10, 30 to 35. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, When He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever you spend. So this story is told in answer of the question, Who is my neighbor? So I want to focus for a moment on the four characters of the story because it's helpful to have context for how uh, the lawyer and the other people hearing this story might have associated with the different characters. So first is the Jewish man who's traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. In my imagination, uh, even though this person isn't named as what his profession is, I imagine him to be a lawyer. I imagine uh, the lawyer to maybe even identify with this character thinking, okay, the Jewish man who's on his way from Jerusalem to Jericho, like maybe this is the one I'm supposed to identify with. Uh, And hearing uh, that it was this particular road, uh, Jerusalem to Jericho, is also a part to pay attention to. Uh, This, as I was looking at this, uh, I was told that this road was no joke. It wasn't that long of a distance. It was about 17 miles And I was curious about what 17 miles is, so I actually was like, I wonder if we are at the church, what's 17 miles from there? And would you know it, the first place that I guessed was actually 17 miles from here. But Shoreline Community College is 17 miles from here. If you just jump on 99, it's a straight shot. Um, So between here and there, 17 miles. But the difference about the Jericho Road is that it was super steep. It it had an elevation change of 3,600 feet. So, Snoqualmi Pass is thirty two hundred feet. Uh, so the and and way more than seventeen miles away. so it was it was a pretty steep road, uh, where Jerusalem began above sea level, but then in Jericho, it went below sea level. So this road was known for being dangerous terrain wise, but it was also dangerous because of robbers and bandits. So this Jewish man encountering robbers and bandits wasn't, it uh, wasn't an anomaly. It, was, it would have been expected almost. Uh, the road was so dangerous that it was known as the Red or the Bloody Way. And I saw even as recently as the 19th century, people still paid uh, to like, have passage through this road, but it continued to be a dangerous place. So I imagine that this man must have been in dire straits to choose to travel that road by himself. I'm curious why he wasn't traveling with other people. Uh, the second character in this is the priest. Uh, something that I read is that at this time there would have been about 20,000 active priests in first century Judaism. Uh, so he would have been one of the 20,000 uh, who they had one week stints of service um, that they would rotate through. So he may have been off duty from his week of priestly work headed home, uh, or he could have been uh, Uh, headed to the city for his week of service. Uh, The third character is the Levite, uh, and Levites were one whose job it was to assist the priests in the temple uh, with music, gatekeeping, and uh, support with uh, sacrifices. And then fourth uh, is the Samaritan. So the New Living Translation that I was reading this in at first Um, even calls him a despised Samaritan, which encapsulates the sentiment of Jews towards Samaritans. Samaritans were a different ethnic group uh, than Jews. Uh, Just the mention of Samaritan in the story would catch the attention of the Jewish listeners because they were neighbors in proximity and they had a shared history, uh, but they were not on good terms. Jews considered Samaritans as foolish, heretical, and outside God's mercy. And their name was even used uh, as a curse. Uh, As a sort of a, a sideline character who isn't part of the story really, but I'm going to add because I'm always intrigued by him as the innkeeper. Uh, I love how the innkeeper is brought into the story by the Samaritan. And he must have been a trustworthy, trustworthy person because the Samaritan said, just tell me however much it's going to cost to finish his care and I'll pay it. Uh, so I feel like it was an, it's an opportunity that the innkeeper had to be in on the compassion and the mercy uh, that the Samaritan was showing so Jesus closes his story with a question that reframes the original question, which is something that I love about Jesus' interaction with people. I feel like Jesus is pretty straightforward with people when they come to him saying, I need healing, or like, would you, would you meet me in this way? But when people come with an ulterior motive like this uh, lawyer did, Jesus sort of uh, meets them with another question that's inviting them to something deeper and in Luke 10, 36, uh, Jesus asks, Which of these three, the priest, Levite, or Samaritan, do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And the lawyer, seemingly reluctantly, answers that the Samaritan was the neighbor, though he doesn't even want to say Samaritan in his response. In verse 37, he said, the expert in the law replied, The one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, Go and do likewise. I wonder if perhaps the lawyer had some deconstructing and reconstructing of his worldview to do before he would be able to see the Samaritan as someone who was fulfilling God's command to love, let alone as his neighbor or part of his people. So I'm thinking back now to that Leviticus verse where the lawyer had said, well, you're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, But for him to be able to insert love your Samaritan neighbor as yourself, he had some deconstructing to be able to do because in his worldview, a Samaritan could not fulfill God's law because they were heretics. Uh, A Samaritan could not be somebody to try to live like because they were uh, not receiving of God's mercy. This is not what he was expecting, and it is disruptive to him. Uh, so, the question is Will he allow Jesus' telling of this story to reframe who he understands his people to be, who his responsibilities of compassion and mercy are toward? And I wonder if this might be a question for us today, too, uh, about who will we allow Jesus' telling of the story to reframe who we understand our people to be and who we have responsibilities of compassion and mercy toward? I feel like in, uh, the space of the, the of the church and what we have to offer into a world of uh, division, divisiveness uh, polarity is that we are to somehow be able to say, you don't have to ideologically be in the same camp as me to be somebody who's deserving of my mercy and compassion. Like somehow, uh, our, what we receive from Jesus, the life that we have in Jesus, somehow we're, we're supposed to be able to live in that way. And uh, that feels like a tall order uh, because so many things around us are not set up in that way. Just thinking of uh, even, even in uh, the situations where, Uh, That, uh, like collectively, nationally over the last couple weeks, I feel like compassion and mercy have not been the first things that I felt compelled to do. I might have felt more compelled towards defensiveness or ignoring. uh, But somehow, uh, I think that there's an invitation as we receive this story for us to be able to reframe who we understand our people to be and who we have responsibilities of compassion and mercy toward. Uh, When the lawyer first asked, Who is my neighbor? he seemed to have something particular in mind, something that he was looking for. Perhaps uh, he wanted affirmation of something he was already doing. He wanted to know, he wanted Jesus to say, You already are loving your neighbor. You're already in proximity to the people who are mutually benefiting you, uh, and you are getting what you want. You are going to be able to obtain um, eternal life. Neighboring, in this perspective, though, would be one-sided, something done for others, perhaps others who are in your group. Uh, And in this, it would be transactional, something that you do so that you can get something that you want. Uh, It would be based on uh, who my perspective of my people are. I would get to define who my neighbor is. But Jesus is defining neighbor differently. Jesus shifts the question from who is my neighbor to who was a neighbor. So the story wasn't to show who is the one I'm supposed to love, but the story is to show who is the one that I am to live like. Jesus invites the lawyer and us into something else. Neighboring uh, in this story crosses expected boundaries of who can and can't reflect God's compassionate and merciful nature and who should receive our compassion and mercy. Uh, Neighboring in this story doesn't work within social boundaries uh, because it has God's kingdom perspective. In this story, neighboring is relational. There's care being moved by compassion, and neighboring is mutual for the benefit of the other, but also knowing that we will need to receive others' compassion too. So it's not a power dynamic where I'm the one who's always giving, always helping, always saving, but really uh, we're at an equal level where we're receiving God's savings so that we're able to be responsive to each other in our need. Uh, So where I want to close is uh, with three uh, thoughts about how someone does neighboring in this way that Jesus is framing in this story. In this framing of neighboring, which is an intentional, compassionate being with others that's mutual, relational, uh, and unexpected, we can look to the story for insight, for how someone is a neighbor, and how someone does neighboring. Uh, First, someone who is neighboring is available to be disrupted. Uh, This made me think of a a small practice that I've uh, realized that I have, um, well, I'm trying not to be redundant, but a practice, a practice that I practice. I don't know how to say that differently. Uh, but when I'm walking on a path or on the sidewalk and I notice something on the ground uh, or I notice a person, uh, I usually keep walking a few steps past. But while I'm doing that, in my mind, I'm working out what it was that I saw. And then usually when I'm five or six steps away, I turn around and I'm like, I want to go back because I want to see what that was or like, I want to talk to the person who I just passed. Um, If someone were, especially when it's a person I'm walking back to, that probably looks a little bit funny sometimes, that I walk several paces away, but then I come back. Um, But this is something that I feel like the story is inviting us to, to be disrupted um, and be intentional, that it's never too late uh, to turn around and to look and to respond. Uh, Unlike the priest and the Levite, the Samaritan stopped to help, and I wonder why, Uh, perhaps he wasn't working from a place of busyness or hierarchy or fear. Uh, We can use our imaginations for why the priest and the Levite did what they did. They may have been busy. They could have been on their way to or from work. They might have been observing religious law of clean and unclean because a half-dead man would definitely have been ceremonially unclean, and for them to have interacted with him would have then made them unclean. And maybe when they got to where they're going, Like, maybe they did have good intentions to help him, but they were going to do it from a distance. Maybe when they got to where they were going, they told people, like, hey, the the Jericho road is dangerous today. You shouldn't go on it. Or maybe they said, I passed this person who uh, had had a hard time. Like, we should pray for him. Like, maybe they had intentions of supporting him from a distance. Uh, One of the uh, resources that was shared with me this week was uh, the... Um, I've been to the mountaintop speech by Martin Luther King, Jr., um, because he talked about the Good Samaritan in that speech. And in that, um, Martin Luther King, Jr. wondered whether the priest and the Levite were afraid. Uh, There might have been robbers still nearby. Uh, The man could have been faking. Uh, But MLK wondered whether the Samaritan asked himself a different question than the priest and the Levite, not, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But if I don't stop to help this man, what will happen to him? And in the reframing of this, uh, perhaps the Samaritan was able to ask that kind of question because he was paying attention to the road. He knew it was a dangerous road, so he wasn't trying to just get by quickly to get himself through it, but maybe his, his eyes were open and he was like, this is a dangerous road. I wonder if everybody's been okay on it today. I wonder if anybody's going to need some help. And so his eyes were open to see it. Uh, for myself, my capacity for disruption when I'm on my way somewhere or uh, uh, have my mind set on something, my capacity is low uh, if my mind is running through and uh, processing what, something that's just happened uh, or if I'm preparing for something that's coming up uh, or if I'm physically or emotionally tired or when I'm overwhelmed and need an uninterrupted plan to maintain some sense of control. All of these things would, if I were on that Jericho road, if all these things were happening to me, I might not have been available to be disrupted either. And uh, knowing these things about myself um, are actually part of the process, I think, of being able to be disrupted, to know what are the barriers for me to be available, what are the things... Uh, that keep me from being available. And for us to be able to receive these things about ourselves without shame, because shame is its own cycle that keeps us from being able to be available. And I don't think that Jesus ever invites us to shame. I think that Jesus invites us to see something about ourselves, to receive Jesus' gaze toward us, which is always loving, even while inviting to something new. Uh, And that through that we're able to become uh, present to ourselves and present to others. Uh, the second idea about neighboring is that neighboring gets close to pain. Uh, and my mind went immediately to the idea of being proximate, which is something that I've heard um, from Brian Stevenson, who's a lawyer and a founder of the Equal Justice Initiative. Uh, and that is an initiative that's worked with uh, more than 125 wrongly condemned people on death row. And about being proximate, uh, Brian Stevenson says, we can't create solutions from a distance. And this makes me think whether it's a distance of the other side of the road, like in the story uh, with the priest and the Levite, or for myself, from the distance of my, uh, my social media feed or my device screen. But um, so we can't create solutions from a distance. And Stevenson goes on to say, decide to get close to people who are suffering marginalized, disadvantaged, and poor. Only in proximity to those who are suffering can we change the world. And this is a stance that's motivated profoundly by Stevenson's faith and that he embodies in his work. The idea of coming close to pain uh, is not a sterile experience. Um, We can't be separated from the one who's experiencing the pain, especially when we're entering in compassion. We're impacted by their story and by their experience. Uh, Dr. Brenda Salter-McNeil in Roadmap to Reconciliation calls this the identification stage where we're so close to someone that their people become our people and our stories are tied together. The Samaritan came near to the injured man not because of an agenda, but because of compassion. It was a heart movement toward another. And perhaps the Samaritan was able to come near to another's pain because he was aware of his own pain. Uh, And I think that that's part of the process for us as well. When we get close to those who are suffering and to those who are on the margins, uh, we come close to the heart of God. And we might find ourselves on the margins and in suffering as well, and it's a comfort to know that God is there with us. Uh, Psalm 34, 18 says that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the Christian spirit. Uh, And this brokenhearted and this Christian spirit is not just an intellectual or emotional way, but also in the physical way. And Jesus said uh, in his mission statement as he was beginning his ministry, speaking of those on the margins, he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. An idea about getting close to uh, is that you don't have to agree with someone or understand their position in order to be witness to and a presence to their pain. We don't have to agree in order to get close. The Samaritan man and the Jewish man had a lot of reasons to be separate and distant, showing no regard for one another's situation. But the Samaritan man stopped, and ultimately, the enemy in the story was the one who neighbored in a way that was honored by Jesus. And then finally, uh, neighboring invests in restoration. So disruption, uh, proximity to pain, through compassion and mercy, uh, these things cost the Samaritan something. Uh, One of the uh, places that I go in thinking about cost is like financially, two two denarii that he paid, that's two days wages that he paid for the initial care, knowing that there would be more. So this was an investment in the injured man's healing and well-being. The Samaritan also commits to going back to the inn to pay any additional expense and to see the process through. He is going to come on this dangerous Jericho road again so that he can see this interaction through. Uh, Martin Luther King, Jr. says prophetically that investing in restoration means going back to the dangerous Jericho road, and it means working to change the landscape of the road, not just addressing one person who is injured by it. He said, every Christian must play the good Samaritan. But there is another aspect of Christian social responsibility which is is just as compelling. It seeks to tear down unjust conditions and build anew instead of patching things up. It seeks to clear the Jericho road of its robbers as well as caring for the victims of robbery. And this is something where... um, uh, in my role as the director for the Ministry of Racial Justice and Reconciliation, I I love this passage because, uh, or this quote from MLK, because um, this idea of restoration is relational and it's also structural. So the things that we're invited to be disrupted by, the things we're invited to get close to, uh, it's for the benefit of us and for the other that we're with in relationship. And then as we're doing those relationships, uh, that's, that's also having an impact on structure and on the, even the fabric of our community. Uh, the place that I want to close here um, before having a time of prayer is uh, that the foundation of all of these things, of being able to be disrupted, uh, being able to get close to pain, uh, being able to invest in restoration, all of these things come because of what we, re- what we have received from Jesus. Uh, if I'm just giving out of my own energy and strength, it's going to be depleted very quickly. And I'll be like my iPad, but without something to plug into. Uh, so what we're receiving in this is from Jesus. And I want to read this from 1 John three sixteen to 18, where it says, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but in actions and in truth. And that's, that's where I want to sit. Let us not love with words or speech, but in, with actions and in truth. And the additional part uh, to that is the invitation to also see yourself, if you are in need, of having your pain responded to, of somebody coming close to you in your pain and responding with restoration. Know that Jesus comes to you in that way and that as a community, we want to come toward one another in that way as well. And that's what I want to pray towards as I close. So I'll invite Ben and Chris back up as as I pray and invite you to pray with me. Jesus, um, thank you for this story that you told and for the way that it continues to tell and retell uh, what it looks like to be formed as a neighbor. There are ways that neighboring is easy, uh, and there are ways that neighboring is hard. uh, In the ways where we experience distance from others ideologically or from our experiences, uh, whatever it may be, it's difficult to be a neighbor across those lines. Thank you that in your kingdom that those lines don't have the the power that they have uh, in in our day-to-day. We want to live in your kingdom where neighboring extends across those places so that we can get close to others um, and call them our people. Uh, Holy Spirit, I particularly pray for the pain that we bring in personally today and ask that we experience you as our neighbor Um, coming close to us in the ways that we need to know that you are close and that you are bringing restoration so that we can in turn live that way with one another. Uh, We give this all to you in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to uh, close with us as we sing.